I'm Dave Schulman, Chess President, and it's my pleasure to welcome you back to another conversation with Chess Leadership. I'm joined today by Alex Niven. Alex, thanks for coming, man. Appreciate it. Thanks for being here. Um, we start almost all of these with a conversation about your journey with Chess. Talk to me a little bit about your first involvement and kind of how you've moved up and then your current role. Gosh, I submitted my first abstract to Chess when I was a third year resident. And, uh, and I think when I was a pulmonary fellow, Chess was very much the, um, the the biggest organization that was on my radar because of the people that, met, that mentored me. And uh, Lisa Moores and Tom Fitzpatrick, um, both names that are well known in this organization, were both folks that worked with me closely as fellows. And so when I was close to graduation from fellowship, I, uh, I kind of asked them, how do I get more involved in chess and contribute to the organization? And, uh, and they gave me probably the best advice that I ever got, which was go to a network meeting in an area that you're gonna be working, um, you know, pay attention and listen to what's going on. And when they look for volunteers, raise your hand and do a good job with whatever they offer you. And so I, uh, you know, my first job, I was an ICU director in a, in a relatively small ICU. So I joined the critical care network. I went to a network meeting. Um, I raised my hand and, and made comments enough that people knew who, who what my name was. And, uh, and then when the steering committee call went out, I, uh, I put together a, a statement that I thought was a good one. And, uh, and, and somehow or other, I got a position on the steering committee. You got a first try. First try. That's kind of unheard of these yeah, days. Yeah, you know, it wasn't as competitive to get into critical care now as it, or then as it is now. Yeah, so I, I sat there for a year on the steering committee, listened and, and tried to figure out if there was anything that I could do. And, uh, and then, you know, this is of course when dinosaurs roamed the earth. Um, the, uh, the call went out about 12 months later that each network had to have a web page. And everybody looked around and said, does anybody know anything about designing a web page? <laughs> Alex, you're kind of a young guy. What you can take care of that. What is the internet? <laughs> <laughs> so um, we designed a web page and they liked that. And so that actually became sort of a template for the networks for a while. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, I just kept on going from there. And uh, it was a couple of years after that that they said, gosh, you know, we, uh, we'd like to do some simulation at CHEST. Does anybody here have any experience with simulation? And at the time I was an associate program director, I was in charge of our simulation program for the residency. So I said, well, I've done a little bit of simulation. And, uh, and so they said, great, why don't you write a curriculum for an airway management simulation experience? So I wrote a curriculum, I got a little carried away. They said, you know, this could be a whole course. And so that was really how I got involved with simulation and chess. And from there, you know, it was pretty easy. So I, um, I was chair of the critical care network uh, and was lots of experiences there that we could talk about. Uh, but really my next step after that was, uh, was getting more and more involved in simulation, kind of growing simulation within our organization, you know, both as a, as a faculty member, course leader, and, and eventually as chair of what was then the simulation subcommittee. And, uh, and that gave me an opportunity to get involved in the education committee, um, chaired education, um, and now I'm on the board. So that's really my, my story in a nutshell. There's a ton of great things to unpack there. Let's, I wanna rewind a little bit to close to the beginning. So as a fellow, you had reached out to some of the faculty with whom you'd worked uh, and you wanted to get involved in CHEST. I think these days there are so many other ways to get education. Right, mm -hmm. you can get online education. There's other societies that do great things. What do you say to fellows, current, you know, junior fellows, senior fellows, even junior faculty who are out 
What's the value? What's your perceived value for them for being involved, not just attending the meeting, but to actually be more intimately involved in chess? Yeah. So um, I'll answer that two ways. So first of all, I mean, I think we are fortunate in our subspecialty to have a number of different professional societies that we can turn to. And I think each one offers something a little different in terms of the strengths and the opportunities that it has. Uh, you know, I was always um, a clinician, a clinician educator, um, doing a little bit of research as well. But I saw a lot of um, extremely talented clinicians and experts at chess. And, uh, and I also saw, um, you know, some really great educational opportunities as a fellow. So I, I really enjoyed a lot of the fellows courses and things like that that I went to. Probably the thing that, that caught my interest the most was the incredibly talented faculty members. You know, we brought these subject matter experts in to sit down and talk to fellows and they were all so gracious and approachable and they'd answer my questions. And so that was something that I really admired and I wanted to be a part of. And then, you know, the educator in me really has appreciated just how creative Chest has been as an organization. You know, I, I, I'll get a little geeky here for a minute in terms of learning theory. Wait, yeah, you, I know. You Shocking. get geeky? I can't, I can't envision. Okay, <laughs> let's, 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 let's take that down. Maybe I could see that happening. Yeah, right, so, so let's do it. So, I mean, how do adults learn, right? So first of all, as an adult, I'm gonna learn something because I have a need, right? I, I wanna learn it because it's confusing to me. I need to know it for my job. I want to take better care of my patients. And so I'm, I'm going to look for some sort of resource that, that's going to take me where I need to go so that I can be a better doctor, take better care of patients, right? Um, the next part is, you know, how do you deliver that information? Well, you know, sitting in the back of an auditorium a thousand miles away from the podium while somebody drones on a screen, yeah, I'd, I'd much rather sit at home in my fuzzy slippers, you know, watching that on my iPad. What I really like about chess, and I, you and I have been involved in this now for over 15 years, um, has been the tremendous diversity of educational offerings that um, this organization has developed with a ton of effort and thought, all with a learner in mind. You know, we started off with simulation, gosh, it was 2006 or 2007. We had a bed in the middle of what we then called the exhibit hall with, where people came by and practiced intubation, right? That was the very first simulation activity we did at CHEST. And then all of a sudden the next year we had like a whole room. And now we build a 29,000 square foot simulation center every year in the convention center and provide, you know, literally four days worth of, well, five days worth of hands-on simulation activities in all sorts of different areas that people can experience. Um, you know, the, the, the intimate one-on-one -on -one conversations that, that brought me into chess to begin with, with, you know, world-class faculty turned into small case-based interactive discussions, right? We piloted that in Atlanta in 2012, <clears throat> no more than 30 people with no more than three faculty members, you know, talking about different cases, clinical challenges, the, the, the stuff that we struggle with every day put in a clinical context answering the questions that you just can't get out of a textbook, you know, or easily through a literature search or up to date. Um, you know, you combine that with the, the interdisciplinary sessions that, that we put together when I was chair, it's sort of 
nobody practices in a vacuum as, as an individual anymore. So how do you blend the multidisciplinary perspective that comes with you know, a tumor board or a multi-specialty interstitial lung disease session or interstitial lung disease discussion. Yeah. And, uh, and, then, <clears throat> and then the other part that I think I've been really excited with over the course of the last five years has been um, looking at introducing other members of our interprofessional team. So you look at the Critical Skills for Critical Care course, which is our, our first simulation course dedicated to advanced practice providers. And what's so cool about that course is, you know, since we're known for physician education, there's still a lot of physicians that come to that course. And so now you've got nurse practitioners, PAs and physicians working in a high fidelity simulation environment, just like real life, you know? And you know what? It's just pure magic. And that's what I really love about this. I mean, I've had a pleasure of working with you, but there's so many people who just like, what if we did this? What if we did this? A few few years ago, we did teaching simulations. Remember, mm -hmm. uh, we stopped doing it since, but we had a couple of scenarios where people who wanted to be academic clinicians would be sort of put through the, uh, the ringer of a couple of, of sort of rigorous, like <laughs> this could happen to you if you're an academic teacher scenarios. I, I've drawn from those resources many times yeah. since we did those sessions, because I think that they're incredibly relevant to our daily practice, you know, and I, so I've used it in our division. So I, I think, Again, that's that's what I like about chest education is it's it's so relevant. You know, we work so hard to focus on the things that that matter for practicing clinicians, clinician educators, you know, and and for that matter, physician scientists who spend the time in, in the clinical setting. I mean, there's a set of skills that you need there. I was thinking about probably the coolest story that I got. Um, from fairly early on in our airway management simulation course. There's all sorts of people that come from, you know, all over really the world sometimes to, to come and join our simulation programs. And, you know, I am regularly humbled by the practice settings that, um, that some people um, are in and, and find themselves in and then come to us to basically leverage our education uh, to, to make that practice setting better. So what I remember was a learner who was in a very rural setting um, in, uh, I believe it was the upper Midwest, who found themselves often in an emergency department um, doing fairly high risk intubations. And so was really looking for an opportunity to strengthen their skills and, uh, and, and just asked a ton of questions and was completely engaged throughout our three-day course, sort of asking about all sorts of different things. So we, had, we actually corresponded back and forth after the course, you know, with additional questions and things along those lines. And it was probably two weeks after we were done with the course, um, got a message from that individual that said, thank you, you know, uh, because I was in the emergency department last night there was, you know, uh, a patient who was um, sort of super obese who came in, who was in respiratory stress, needed to be intubated. And <clears throat> all I did was basically use all the crew resource management skills that we talked about. I organized the team. We talked about a plan and a backup plan, and the intubation went beautifully. And I saved a life last night. And that's, that's, awesome. that's just something that puts a smile on your face. Now, Another funny story that just came to mind when I was thinking about See, there that. are more funny stories than we no, give no. credit for if you work here long enough. Just, just to compare and contrast <laughs> where we had come from the beginning of simulation of chest to that. So I still vividly remember my, my very first airway course in our old building at chest. 
Um, we uh, it was it was the very first simulation course through full full three day simulation course that Just had offered. We put up temporary walls. We had you know we had at that time many simulators. Um, we just bought a bunch of supplies and that were all over the place. That we had to organize and all that stuff. So I, I got there early the day before. I organized everything. The rest of the faculty got there. We were going to practice for you know an hour and a half at the end of the day, and and then we were going to be ready for the learners. We turned on all the computers and servers, ready to go, and the servers started smoking, and then everything shut down. And that was not simulated. That was, that was not simulated. Really that was smoking. my life. So you know, I, I I sat in a corner, sort of trying to control my bodily functions for the next like you know hour and a half, and nothing was working. Right. So uh, so we actually left that night. Um, and went to dinner not knowing if everything would turn on the next day with 30 people, again, coming from all over the place. We had somebody who came from Israel for that course. Um, and so the next morning was was a little bit of a, yeah, little little anxiolytic experience or anxious experience. And, uh, and fortunately, everything turned on and everything went great. But yeah, just, to, just to think about where we started and where we've come, it's just amazing. I will say uh, that somehow we always find a way to get it done. I can I won't enumerate them all here, but I remember we were meeting in Atlanta in 2012, and there was some. Fortunately, I'm living in Atlanta. I have a hospital system in Atlanta, and we had to there were the vents. The the vents that we brought weren't working, so we had to calibrate them. But we had no pressurized oxygen or pressurized. Yeah. We had to, and so. Thankfully, my institution was kind. We actually brought the ventilators over to my institution, pressurized them, brought them back to the um, sim center. Yeah, I mean, super, super exciting first days. And now here we are. I mean, I think we've had, I've lost count now, at least 15 or 18,000 people come through our yeah. simulation activities. I mean, we're the only society which is uh, which is certified um, by by the Society for, uh, for um, the SSIH, the Society for Simulation and Healthcare, um, you know, in terms of our simulation center. And uh, you know, it's uh, it's just cool to see everything that this this organization has achieved there. So you've talked at length about education, understanding that no one knows the future with certainty. If you were to make a best guess, what is how does education evolve over the next five to ten years in the professional education space, like what Chess is offering? I think we're actually at a really exciting time when it comes to education because of this crazy disruptive event called the COVID nineteen pandemic. I'm not familiar with that. Yeah. Um, so I, I think what we've done in the last couple of years is tripped all over ourselves to pivot to virtual and hey, we've, we've delivered tons of virtual content in a variety of different settings. And uh, I think we've been very effective with that. But I don't think that we've really been very systematic in terms of what works, what doesn't, and now how we translate into a hybrid environment. I don't think anybody has because we've been making it up as we go on the fly. You know, that's what the pandemic has taught us to do. Um, you know, speaking as an individual, uh, in my at my division, you know, in my institution, my attendance has doubled since we became facile in the virtual environment. Remote attendance. Remote yeah. attendance. And, uh, and I think we've had that same experience in chess when it comes to our outreach with the international audience, especially. You know, there's lots of barriers that we have in terms of travel and expense and time um, that, uh, that, that limit access to the tremendous educational offerings that we have. The problem is that as soon as you start mixing a live activity with virtual streaming attendance, there's a huge risk of bad TV, you know? And so striking that balance between 
preserving the high quality in-person experiences that I'm still going to argue are best practice, right? I mean, there's there's something about an interaction where I can I can see your face, I can read your body language, and I can ask questions easily without raising my electronic hand, you know, that I think translates into more effective, you know, knowledge, skills, and attitudes transfer, you know. At the same time, I, I'm really reluctant to walk away from that leveling of the playing field in terms of opening all of these tremendous opportunities to a much broader audience and also thinking about creative ways to deliver that content and measuring the impact of that of that creative delivery so that we can further refine you know how we do this and how we do good business there's so many different questions to answer with that i mean i we just we were arguing last week about the chat box right is the chat oh, box yeah. a good thing or a bad thing because on the one hand, all of a sudden, people who never raise their hand and, and ask questions feel comfortable asking questions. You can provide, you know, targeted references for things that are that are going on in real time. At the same time, as as human beings, we constantly overestimate the ability that, that we have to multitask without getting distracted. And as soon as we get distracted, we stop learning. So lots of questions there. What is the value of I'll say gamification of entertainment, fun, oh, sorry, gamification of education and fun in education. Because some have argued it facilitates learning and some have argued it distracts from learning. Do you have an opinion on this? Of course I have an opinion. <laughs> How silly of me to ask. We haven't discussed it before. So what is your opinion on this? So I, I, I think honestly, uh, and this will follow up on your last question a little bit as well. I, I think this is probably the biggest challenge of our generation is thinking about how to take all of these new educational innovative deliveries and string it together in a way that makes sense. So, you know, ironically, everything that we have done over the course of the last several years at, at Chest in terms of bite-sized learning, infographics, you know, gamification, and, uh, and you know, I, the list goes on and on, is in some ways the antithesis of what I thought about when I introduced interdisciplinary programs, which were, in-depth, thoughtful, you know, um, multidisciplinary interprofessional experiences, right? But I think the reality is people don't want that right now. People want the quick, you know, the quick sound bites. They only have 10 to 15 minutes worth of time to spend. Um, and, and that's only intensified, I think, with the pandemic and the influences of the pandemic. What I worry about is how you string those 10 to 15 minute bite-sized chunks into a logical learning pathway that translates into taking better care of patients at the bedside. And I think, you know, as an educator, as somebody who spent far too much time thinking about curriculum development and, and designing longitudinal learning experiences, um, I think that's the biggest challenge is how do you integrate a game to, to keep people engaged and interested with you know a one-on-one -on -one conversation with a subject matter expert, maybe a podcast, you know maybe a hands-on learning experience and simulation, and put all that stuff together in a way that translates into what really counts, which is I now have more skills and knowledge to take better care of patients and improve their outcome. So, there is an effective way to do it. I mean, I've seen if I've seen. What are what are the advantages of of, of gamification? You have engagement, you have excitement, all of those things help focus um, and help knowledge transfer. You have variety 
spaced reinforcement, and in some cases, testing effect. Those are all nerdy education terms that translate into better learning. So I think there's a real, a real advantage to gamification. The question is, how do you integrate that into the bigger picture? What's the right balance? What's the right timing? Yeah. So we've talked a lot about the educational benefits of participation in national, international societies. What about the non-educational benefits, the socialization, the collegiality? Can you talk a little bit about your experience there? And and how do you, and is there a way to measure? Like, how do you how do you show somebody who's interested in getting involved? Like, actually, there's this other thing that isn't what is first comes to mind with chess and other societies, but is really valuable. So, I think most people turn to professional societies primarily thinking about opportunities, professional opportunities and, and career advancement. You know, I, I think for, for any um, fellow, for any junior faculty member, they want to learn, they want to get updates. And if they want to get involved, they're, they're looking for opportunities to, to advance their career. Promotions. And yeah, stuff. absolutely. And, and I think that CHEST, just like any other medical society, provides um, ample opportunities for that. I think one of the things that I loved about Chess and the Networks was that I felt like those opportunities were more readily available for me at an earlier point in my career than perhaps some other societies that, that I belong to as well. I think what I didn't appreciate and didn't realize was how personally rewarding being a part of this organization is because I just get to meet and work with just fantastic people. I wouldn't have met you if it wasn't for Chess. Well, I'm not sure that I'm a value add. Well, I appreciate no, your saying that. We've been friends now for quite a few years. Couple years. Yeah, and I've learned a ton from you, and uh, and I made a good friend. And honestly, you know, the friends that I've made that are going to be personal and professional colleagues for life, I, I I I need more than my two hands to keep track of. And so, you know, great personal relationships, great career advice, great mentors along the way. Um, I have no doubt that I that I would not have half the experience, um, the rich experiences that I have right now, if it wasn't for this organization. Shoot, we went to China. We you know, we traveled around. We had a good time. I wouldn't have been in China if it wasn't for that for that experience that really chess facilitated. You know, that was Chess World Congress, and then we just kind of figured out things to do after that. And there have been a, a, an inordinate number of friendships that have stemmed from professional associations from chess. I agree. It's, and it's it is. Again, I would, I would repay the verbal favor. I have learned a ton both from you and from many others with whom I've worked here. And not just about like how to intubate somebody or, but just like career advice, life stuff. It's, it's very interesting. No, I, I mean, I, I'm, I feel very fortunate that I have a long list of mentors and the vast majority of those mentors um, either were engaged in chest or I met through chest. Uh, and that's made all the difference. What's the last television show you binged? And you know, watching a season or more over a relatively short period of time. Oh, so the uh, it's the last days of Ptolemy Gray. It's well, this a, is uh, Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah, on on Apple TV. Oof, that was great. I have no, what is it? I have no idea what's about. Oh, so it's a it's a it starts off. It's horribly depressing, right? So inner city inner no city. No spoilers for those who haven't seen it yet. Inner city family. Um, this guy who basically is dying from dementia, living in horrible conditions, being cared for by his nephew. Right. Um, his nephew gets shot um, right after he finds a, a connection for an experimental drug that, uh, that that he gets. And all of a sudden, uh, Samuel Jackson's mind is back, but only for a short period of time. And his his you know undisputed goal is he wants to find his nephew's killer. 
So well, that's interesting. Cool it has a little bit of flowers for Algernon spin. I don't know if you remember yeah. that story. Yeah, yeah. no, absolutely. Um, what's what music song or what song will come on on the radio and uh, you're going to always sing along? <laughs> well, so my family makes fun of me because I just listen to the same sort of Pandora feeds over and over again. And uh, and I, I guess uh, I'll throw this out because you probably won't expect this. So I'm a big Red Hot Chili Peppers fan. I can see that. So that's that's the that's the the sort of the station. They, they just have a new album. They just released a new album, I believe. Uh, they just got a star on the on the Hollywood, uh, you know, an aggregate walk. star, one for all four of them. Yep, yep, you got it. Uh, so, know any particular song that kind of strikes? It's like, oh, this is the favorite of the of the uh, of the Chili Peppers uh, uh, so, albums and songs. So, honestly. Um, Probably one of the reasons why I'm attached to them is Stadium Arcadium came out uh, during my first deployment in 2006. Uh, so it brings back a lot of memories from Iraq. And uh, and so that's the reason why I listen to that. So I always sort of attach to those songs on the albums I go through. Singing along, I don't know. Not I'm not so going to admit to that. I won't ask you to do it here, I promise. I will ask a lot of things, but that's not. Um, comfort food. What's the food that just gives you happies? Oh, gosh. So, um, so dessert is easy, brownies. Um, Any particular brand or like things you'll make themselves? Not ice, the, not ice chocolate chips inside. The, be a little bit more the than dense, brownies. The denser the chocolate, the better. Okay. Um, so there's this. Um, so there's this cake that my dad introduced me to, which is um, I don't know if it's Austrian, but it's certainly European. It's called Sacker Tort. It's yes. uh, It's yes. basically a flourless. Dense it might be chocolate. Swiss or German. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's it's really dense, basically just chocolate cut in a wedge. That's. Yeah, that's got That's it. That's now, do you make right this? Do you make it? Do you purchase oh, it? I have no idea how to make it. <laughs> Come on. Is, is there anything if I, you make? Is there any if specially? I, if, like, I, if I find it on a menu, I'll go out of my way to do okay. it. Okay. Is there is there especially the kids like, oh, dad's cooking tonight. He should make this. Is there a thing? No, you know, yeah. I, I can pretty much burn anything on a grill, you know, and uh, and I enjoy doing that. Okay. Uh, you know, yeah, nothing, nothing super exciting. Otherwise, my my wife will always tease me about I, my my big date food that I used to make way back when I was a when I was a you know much younger than yeah. now when the uh, rocks were soft. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so chicken parm that was yeah I I, I thought I had you, that. Down. But that's not insignificant. You have to bread your chicken. You have to fry it, and that's not an insignificant amount of work. Like the sauce and cheese may not be much, but the cooking part. I used to fancy myself as a cook. If yes. I if I said something like that in public now, my wife would come after me because the reality is she does most of it now. Got so. it movie that's a guilty pleasure meaning you're flipping around and the movie comes on and even though you've seen it five times you're you're gonna watch it at least for a while even though you're not really proud to admit that you've watched it for a while well so i was just talking to uh to to vic test about this today um uh so so the born series yes um, the matt damon yeah and there was one i think later with jeremy renner i can't remember somebody, yeah. somebody later took it over after matt damon yeah kind of yeah I, the matt damon series is still what i sort of grew up with i'll watch that over and over again those are not great movies. No, they're not. They're not. <laughs> and there were like four of them, or like three or at least three, three or three of them. Yeah. And then the and then the new one. Yeah. But yeah, I, I you wanted you wanted. No, no, no it's a good it's a good answer. I just look any good answer you give to that question is going to make you subject to at least some modest amount of ridicule. If not from me, then from people who will watch this and then later be like, wait, you're that guy who watched that terrible born movie series. You know the um, the other movie that I uh, that I I will still just fixate on every time it comes on TV. And my kids give me all sorts of grief about this. Is um, and this just gets back to you know when I was when I was in the military. I love Patton the movie. Oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. Well, that. no, no. That's a, that's the old one. Your kids. I mean, it's a kids, really. A, and yeah. they're like, Dad, it's so lame. The special effects are dumb. 
It's not there for the special <laughs> effects. Um, didn't George Scott, I feel like he won an Oscar for that. He did. Yeah. It was an amazing role. Um, all right, last question. TV show, or again, this may be the answer you would give, maybe give us the answer. TV show or movie from when you were young that you've tried to get your kids to watch, but the kids are like, this is terrible. So I'll, I'll take Patton off the list. Oh, no, no. So I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to score this up as a victory. First time I introduced my kids to Star Wars, yes. they were like, Dad, this is so boring. There's no action and the special <laughs> and the special effects, effects are, terrible. are terrible in retrospect. Yes. Because I, I introduced them to episode four, four first because I'm like, I, you know, I saw the original back when I was seven years old. You're going to love this. Um, yeah, it took introducing them to, to those early ones, like episode one through three, and they loved all that stuff because of all the special effects, and now they're hooked. So wait, so, they, so, you, so they didn't care for the original <coughs> four through six. Yeah, they said- You then sold them the ones with special effects one through three, which our generation generally did not appreciate, and after that, they were able to palette four through six? Well, so I started off with this. They said, peace out, Dad. I don't wanna do that. <laughs> yeah. I'm going back to other stuff. Took two years, and then I brought them back to it, and now they're hooked. So, yeah, Impressive. the rest of that is absolutely correct. So for me, that is the early some of the early Mel Brooks movies. Really? Yes, which oh, nice. I still think are funny. I mean, some of them are a little risque now, retrospective, don't hold up. But you know, the kids watch it and they're like, "This is terrible." I'm like, Mel Brooks is a comedic genius. Like this dad, this is terrible and they will constantly joke about it. and they will complain to my wife like you won't i didn't make them watch it it wasn't like i stapled them to the couch but they had no interest in watching it like even Spaceballs, which i think is considered by many who are a little younger than us to be like that's a solid movie dark they don't get it Come they, on. they do not get it they don't get it it's a different kind of humor than it is now um thanks again always a pleasure man thanks man appreciate you having me